chapter, and the 13th chapter will deal with those fancy beasts which uh, theologians tried to figure out for the last 2,000 years. Who are these beasts? What are they doing and where are they coming from? And we're going to look at that on an entirely different time. You, the only thing I'm telling you this is you do not want to miss the next few Sundays. You just don't want to miss it. But today we're going to look at how God's provision works. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. We're going to look at the central passage here because it describes that relationship actually between Satan and God and what's happening there. Okay. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and the angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Lots of things happened, as we have learned last Sunday. John actually sees here a whole panoramic view Past, present, and future from the viewpoint where he was living 2,000 years ago. And God obviously gives him a little bit of uh, insight. When you look at Daniel and you study Daniel, Daniel is entirely different. He never saw a panoramic view from going to the past. He was just in the present where he was living in that empire. And then he saw the future of the world empires. Not so with John. John saw the past too. He saw the whole thing, how it unfolds. And that's why God allowed him to see the battle that is going on between God's forces and satanic forces. And that battle obviously is immensely, immensely strong even today. Some of us recognizing when we are in our battles with fellow men that this is actually not a battle with fellow men. It's actually a spiritual battle first and foremost. 
And so this morning, the central passage here describing that sat satanic relationship to God and Israel, in particular, during the second half of the tribulation period, I think that's where we are about time-wise. And for those of you who have been going a little bit too fast with these things, sorry, that's just the way it goes. It goes actually fast. So the tribulation period is seven years, according to Daniel. Uh, there's a very specific day when the clock starts ticking. It will take three and a half years, and then in three and a half years, everything changes. After three and a half years, all of a sudden, the things which people thought was the greatest thing on earth turns into a satanic attack, and Satan is going to be unleashed in a mighty and powerful way. Let me give you an outline here quickly of the entire chapter that kind of helps you to put it into perspective. I wrote it down for you. Let's see if we have it. We may have it. Revelation 1 and 5, the first, two, uh, the first five verses are summary from the birth to the ascension of Jesus Christ. That's how it works. If you look at the first five verses. Then first six in that chapter shows Jews are on a constant run. The next few verses, 7 to 14, reveals the reason why the Jews are on the constant run. How many of you have ever followed the Jewish history? You know, they're constantly on the run. They have no homeland until 1948. And that is even under constant bombardment. And then verses 15 and 17 describe satanic persecution of those who are left. You obviously know during the Second World War, half of the entire world Jewish population has been eliminated. And somehow they're making it. And the answer obviously is why, or the question is, why is Satan so furious that he constantly zeroes in on one people group and wants to destroy them and them only? Why? Well, the answer is found in God's word. And if I would ask you this morning, give me a, a kind of a little outline of why probably you would give me an answer such as, well, they're God's people. Well, uh, God had a special plan for them. Actually, the ultimate reason why Satan is so against it is Satan knows God made a covenant with Israel. He's a covenant God. And so we're going to look at that quickly, briefly, and I have to challenge some of you this morning, so just sit quiet, don't get too excited about it, and uh, I hope you have no tomatoes to throw at me as I say that, because I will challenge the status quo quite frequently to all this as we study that, because how many of you know, our forefathers just a hundred years ago did not know what we know about the history over the last hundred years? We're looking back on it, and so we have to incorporate that and gives us a bigger uh, viewpoint and a better and sharper viewpoint and also a better understanding what we find in the book of Revelation. So God entered into a covenant relationship with whom? Oh, first thing, what did he do first? With Abraham. Abraham, you remember the big discussion Jesus had with the religious leaders and they obviously claimed to be sons of Abraham and then Jesus had to correct them and tell them, well, you, you got it all wrong. So God made a covenant with Abraham and obviously later on with Abraham's descendant, first with Isaac, which is Abraham's son, and then his grandson, Jacob. God made this uh, covenants and reinforced his covenant. Jacob's name was changed after he came back from captivity and fought with God. And he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. You remember that story? And then eventually God blessed him by changing his name. And he called him 
Israel. That's where the name Israel comes from. So the covenant is going to go to Israel. So the covenants contained in the Bible are absolutes. You can't change them. God made them. He's initiated and he signed them, so to speak. So the covenant relationship is between God and a people group or a person. But it has absolutely nothing to do with what we today know in the Western world, especially in America, as the covenant theology. And I say that because it's widespread and it's spreading actually pretty fast. Covenant theology is actually a human invention. Do you know that? It is. There are primarily two covenants, and I tell you that so when you come across, you know what to toss. In the Reformed theology, there's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. The problem is, neither one of them is found in the Bible. That's the problem. So if you're going to say we are going to be a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, we cannot take something that has been handed down to us from man and then say, well, I think it's biblical. If it's not found in the Bible, it's not found in the Bible. So I looked at the Bible many times. There's no covenant of works and there's no covenant of grace in there. Why it's so important is because the 12th and 13th chapter of the book of Revelation has been interpreted for hundreds of years from the viewpoint of a covenant theology. And therefore, wrong conclusion. I give you a little hint, a foretaste. It has nothing to do with the 12th chapter, but it has a lot to do with the 13th. Are you ready? Okay. We already studied that there were five empires. You remember that? And we easily, from a historical perspective, could point, pinpoint these five empires. And the last one was Rome that was in view. Remember? What kind of empire came after Rome? No. Uh, you wish. Where is your historical knowledge? The British Empire. After Rome came the British Empire. The British Empire conquered everything. There was no empire before the British Empire that spread as far as Britain, Great Britain. But if you go into covenant theology, which was developed in Britain, it's not going to be found in interpreting biblical truth because nobody wants to see that in there. But listen, my friend, history tells us it was the British Empire. How many of you would like to argue there was no British Empire? Okay. Ken, what do you think? Which empire was it? Ottoman, Ottoman Empire is the Turkish Empire. That's correct. How long did that last? 1917. Excellent. So we're going to look at that empire too. And the British. And another one. Out of that comes another one. Very good. So we're going to look at all these things. We have to go back to the history and see how this history has unfolded. Excellent. So, this is just a little bit a clue why covenants are so important. Okay, they're super important. And the covenant revealed in the Bible is a covenant God makes. So, how many are they? Major covenants in the Bible, what do you think? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Pick. They're five, five, major, five major covenants in the Bible revealed. Okay. One of them is a conditional covenant. And four of my unconditional covenants. Unconditional covenant simply means God says, 
I will. Doesn't matter how you react. I will. Give an example. Let's go. We celebrated this morning the new covenant. Remember? With his blood, he sealed it. The new covenant is a covenant God made through his son, Jesus Christ. Whoever is under the blood is safe and sound. That's an unconditional covenant. God did. How many people got saved when Jesus died on the cross? Did he die for a few or for everybody? Everybody. But not everybody accepts it. That's the problem. So, let's look quickly at these eternal covenants God made primarily with Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, the 68 verses in that chapter, we're not going to read it all, but I give you a few verses. Now it came to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, Moses speaking here, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord. How many of you would have to say there's a condition attached? You have to obey the voice of the Lord. Well, that same covenant later on says, but it shall come to pass, in verse 15, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you. Boom. How many of you like to go for curses? Nobody wants to go for curses, so we go for the blessing. There's a condition attached. We can make the difference. So that will be called a conditional covenant. Notice, in a conditional covenant, the fulfillment depends upon the recipient of the covenant. In an unconditional covenant, the condition depends on the issuer of the covenant. It's unconditional. For the Jews... This covenant relationship, when it was conditional, did not turn out good. That's why they're always on the run. That explains chapter 12. They're always on the run. They do they not fulfill their obligations, and therefore the covenant was violated. God made, however, four unconditional covenants with them, and I give you quickly a few of them, well, all four of them. The first one is, we mentioned that already God made a covenant with Abraham. That, that's known as the Abrahamic covenant. That's found in Genesis chapter 12. So you can find that in Genesis chapter 12, where God says, Abraham, I make a covenant with you. You may want to shed that uh, light on your Bible with a highlighter. Now the Lord said to Abraham, get out of the country from your kindred, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a covenant which God made with Abraham. He said, I will, I will, I will. How many times do you think Abraham failed? Did he fail a few times? Yes, he went all over the place. God says, my covenant with Abraham stands. It's an everlasting covenant, and God will fulfill it. There's another everlasting covenant. Look at verse 7 in the same chapter. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. That's the land Abraham went to, which is known as Palestine today. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and 
he appeared to him. And if you're not 100% sure if it was there, it says, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west of Ai, on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham kept on journeying. So God made a covenant with him, a land covenant. This covenant was confirmed over and over and over throughout the lives of Abraham's descendants. That covenant sets eventually the exact boundaries of the land God has given these people. And by the way, I don't have a map put up for you because it would be a three-hour sermon, so we squeezed it to one hour. That covenant tells us that the boundaries of Israel, the covenant God made with God, goes all the way up to Iraq, into Syria, comes down to Jordan, and goes over to the Sinai Peninsula, and then goes back up to the Mediterranean. A lot more land than what they have today. A lot more. So when Jesus comes back in the book of Revelation at the end of it and setting up his kingdom, what land do you think is he going to claim? Oh, he's not going to ask the United Nations if they like it. You know, he, he knows what's his and he takes it. So this is why it's in the Bible. It's called an everlasting covenant. It cannot be changed. The covenant is there. And so the boundaries are set in the Bible, very clearly, God said in Ezekiel chapter 16, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. In other words, it will be an everlasting covenant. I gave you a lot of scripture verses which you can study at home. We're not going to look at them all this morning. But I go quickly to another covenant God made when King David was in place. We all know the story how Saul was first king and then David came. David was a man after God's own heart and God eventually made a tremendous covenant with David. The theologians call that the Davidic covenant. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 to 16 and we might go there quickly. 2 Samuel, this is a seed promise there which I believe is very important to see because that seed promise to Abraham is in, found in David. When you look eventually at the book of Matthew and you find that there's a lineage of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, what do you find in that lineage? Whose name do you find? David. That lineage is crucial. It's very important. And that covenant was made uh, between God and King David. Look at verse 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, he's talking to David, and you rest with your fathers, I will, God speaking, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Stop. Was there a king in Israel on the throne forever, consecutively? No. What is God saying? Well, let's read on. He goes on to say, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of man and with the blows of the sons of man. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. God took the kingdom from Saul permanently, but he will not so do with David's seed. 
He goes on to say, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all these vision. So Nathan spoke to David. God spoke through the prophet Nathan and told David these things. What happened is when Samuel came and anointed David, he knew that David was a very special person. When David heard from God, God spoke to him constantly that he will establish him forever. When eventually Solomon showed up, he uh, confirmed that again, that he will establish the kingdom. But he also had told Solomon that if he does not do his will, he will remove him temporarily. Israel had no king since. Judges. Lots of churches. And then dispersed all over the world. Even today, Israel has no king. There was one coming 2,000 years ago and introduced him as the king of the Jews. Did they like the king then? No, they hanged him. They crucified him. But when he comes back, they will have, there's only one more king for Israel. And it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes back. That's what we know as the Davidic covenant. And then obviously in Jeremiah chapter 31, there's one of the most greatest exciting covenants revealed to us. And that is what we know as the new covenant. Notice that this new covenant guarantees Israel a converted heart. Let's read it. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Both houses are mentioned here because they eventually split. Not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Does that sound like the new covenant we are under? I will remember their sin no more. Behold, the days are coming. They are yet in the future. That's what we know as the new covenant. If you go to Zechariah, that's a little bit further back in the Bible, and you find in Zechariah chapter 9 a very interesting uh, description of what Jeremiah already said. And in, he tells us that when Jesus came the first time, they would not recognize him. It's actually in the book. Can you believe that? Chapter 9, verse 10. Listen to this. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from the sea to sea and from the rider to the ends of the earth. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim. Right there, it says that Zion will greatly rejoice in the first before. And then it says that they will actually cut him off. Behold, your king is coming to you in verse 9. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. We all know who that was. 
a colt, the foal of a donkey, but I will cut off the chariot. I will cut it off. Jesus was cut off, and obviously the Jewish people did not like it. Then, in chapter 12 of Zechariah, same prophet, he's telling us that Jesus came the first time. The second time they will recognize him. I will pour on the house of David in verse 10 and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Wow. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Who is known in the Bible as the firstborn? Jesus. And in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. In other words, they finally recognize who that Jesus is. This prophecy is connected to the 12th chapter of Revelation, verses 7 to 17. Let's go back and look quickly at it. Let's go back to Revelation 12. And let's look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And then the dragon starts doing something. He persecutes the woman who gave, that's past tense, who gave birth to the male child. We already have established that the male child is the Lord Jesus Christ. Correct? How does he do it? He goes after it, and somehow, somehow, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Okay, let's stop right there. We obviously talk in symbolism again. You have seen that whenever you see a symbol, it points towards a reality. Remember that? So let's look at this. How many of you know women do not grow wings? It's just the way it goes. This is only happening in America and the churches when they die, we make wings because we tell them to turn into angels. Real angels don't have wings. Cherubims have wings. Just for you to know, at least according to what I'm reading in the Bible. So this woman was given two wings of a great eagle, and the reason for it is that she might fly into the wilderness. This is a symbolic language, and we can easily interpret that from the Old Testament. In Exodus, in chapter 19, it says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. God is speaking to the Israelites, and he said, on how I bore you on eagles' wings. How many of you know God did not take the Egyptians' Uh, and said, okay, guys, you go after my people, and then you go after my people. I'm just going to have them, you know, all having wings, and they fly. No, he says, I have carried you out from under Egyptian bondage. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Symbolic language. These wings are for protection. Remember, Jesus uses the same analogy when he says, I, like a hen, Try to get to protect you, try to take you under my wings, but you would not let me. Jesus didn't have wings. 
He uses that symbolically for protection and provision. No wonder Jesus said later on, I want you to know, there will be a time coming where everybody in Jerusalem will be ransacked, dies, and everything will be destroyed, which happened in 70 AD. And he cried over Jerusalem. I remember when he was the, with the cross going up to Golgotha and the women were crying for him. He said, woman, don't cry for me. Cry for Jerusalem. Watch for yourselves. The worst is yet to come. So he used this analogy of the wings as protection and as uh, provision. Wings in the Bible always be used for protection when it's used symbolically. In Psalm 17, 8, I give you three psalms that bring that clearly out. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Why would you go under the shadow of God's wings? For protection, for provision. In Psalm 36, 7, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of man put their trust under the shadow of your wings. You see that? Psalm 91, everybody knows Psalm 91, you probably have it memorized. We like that psalm, and in verse 4 it says, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You see that? God doesn't have feathers, he doesn't have wings. This is symbolically speaking that he is protecting and guiding and providing for all his people. Symbolism. Where do these people go to find protection is the next question. And how long do they have to be protected by God when this happens? It says right there that they will go into the wilderness where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. If you have a newer translation, it just says clearly two and a half years. A time is a year. Times is two years, add that two, it makes three years, and the half a time makes three and a half years. It's kind of old English language. But it's three and a half years, so God will protect them for three and a half years, and they go into the wilderness. A lot of people said they're going to uh, kind of flee down to the Sinai Peninsula because it's desert down there. But there's a problem with that. If you go to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is speaking about the exact same thing. And he says that when they are going to see these things happening, they are going to flee to a very specific place. Let's quickly read it. We find out what he said. Then we have to make sure that uh, both conditions are being fulfilled. He says in verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee where? To the mountains. To the mountains. And in Revelation, we say that the wilderness is the place well, so wilderness and mountains need to match. Okay? Both of them need to be fulfilled. The question obviously is now, let's see if we can find the exact location where God will protect his people. Wouldn't that be interesting? It has to be in the desert, and it has to be in the mountains. Okay. For that we may go to the Old Testament, Micah. Micah was one of those minor prophets. That doesn't mean he was a small prophet. In stature and what he said, it's just a small book. 
And if you go to Micah chapter 2, verse 12, you will find something. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like the sheep of the fold. Interestingly enough, the word of the fold there is a Hebrew word, Bozra. If you look in your uh, Greek text, you will find out that the word there is Bozra. Bozra is actually a city. But he said, Micah said, I will put them together like sheep in Bozra. Like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many men. One third of all Jewish people who at that time live in Israel will make a move swiftly under the protection of God and will move out along the mountain range and will go to Bozer. Where is Bozer? Bozer is an ancient city that was lo located in the region of Mount Seir. This is, by the way, a very rocky mountain area. As a matter of fact, Mount Seir means hairy mountain because it has so many little peaks like hair sticking up on your head. If you have a few like I, you know. Hairy mountains, that's what that means. So, this is an ancient city. Mount Seir is located on the western side of ancient Edom. Have you ever read Edomites, Ammonites, and all these other ites? Edom. And it's extending all the way east, southeast to the Dead Sea. Everybody knows where the Dead Sea is at. And then at the end of the Dead Sea is a city called Aqaba. Today, this area is located in modern Jordan. It's not in Israel. It's in Jordan. For those of you who probably know history a little bit better, you know when Israel was promised by the British Empire when they sliced all these sections in the Middle East which the British Empire had under their power into different countries, they gave Israel a huge landmass and then when the Arabs kind of said, hey, 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 what about us? They sliced it and gave them only a tenth of what they actually had on the map. And so they created a new uh, country like Jordan. And in that new country, Jordan, is the place where God will protect his people. There are two possible places where God will protect his people. Bozra is one of them. That's a possible thing. One could be, it could be the exact location right there. And Bozra right now is actually a, a Bedouin town by the name of Buzera. It's an Arab name, B-U-S-E-I-R-A. But there's also another place in that vicinity, and everybody knows that place who has read the Bible a little bit, and that place is called Petra. That's another place. We're not 100% sure Petra would uh, fit the picture because Petra has a very small entrance going into a mountain that opens inside like a city. And there are only three people can stand next to each other to get through it. And obviously that's why Bosra, which is located in that area, is called a sheepfold. A sheepfold is pretty simple. When the shepherd brought his sheep in, he had a gate, a narrow gate, 
for the reason to count them. So he knew he didn't have anyone still out there in the wilderness. So he brought them in, and as they came in, they all had to go to that gate. So he counted every one of them. So when everybody was in, he locked the gate and said, okay. But the minute they were inside, it was a wide area where the sheep could spread. Okay? Jesus, by the way, said, I am the gate. I am the door to get into that beautiful place that opens up. But it's a narrow gate. Remember, part is the way. Now you understand Matthew 7. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to life. He's talking about going to that, to that gate, and that gate is the gate of death for us, by the way. If you're not willing to die, you don't have life in Christ. And he counts every one of them who comes. And then they're in. So it could be that Petra is the place where the Jewish people flee very swiftly, protected by God, without God's protection, they would not make it. And then they go to that little narrow passageway, and then they make it into the city, and there somehow God will protect them. But he's got a problem on his hands. One third of all the Jewish people will be there. We don't know what that one third entails, but it's definitely in the millions. How in the world do you want to feed a million plus people in a mountain area where there is no food and no water? This is desert. And this is the reason why God wrote down for us how he delivered the Jewish people out of Egypt when there was no water and no food to be had. How did he do it? He said to Moses, hey, there's an opportunity for you. See the rock? Water came out. We think there's a little tiny one-inch pipe coming out, you know? Click, 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 click. How do you want to water one million people coming to a one-inch pipe? It's not going to work. When God opens the floor and makes sure that these people have enough water, you're talking about billions of gallons to feed those people with the necessary food and water. And he will do it miraculously. Not for a day. Not for three weeks. Not for a month. For three and a half full years. And you tell me God cannot take care of us for a couple of months. Three and a half years. Satan is after them for three and a half years. And the Bible says John saw it. And she was nourished. Nourished, that means God took him for a time and times and a half time from the presence of the serpent. The serpent was furious, correct? The Bible says he spewed water out of his mouth. Not real water. Like a flood. Like a. It's symbolism. Whatever Satan will use, there's plenty of them in the Bible where it says, the army of the Moabites came in like a Flood. It's symbolism. So it's not water that comes like a flood. It's something Satan does. And most scholars believe it's the army of the Antichrist who will pursue them. Remember, they will come into the land, they will cover the land entirely, they will ravish everything in there, and one third will escape, two thirds will die. And how many of you know Satan as a good commander? He will not let these two thirds get away without the fight. So he will pursue him. But this time, God will intervene. God will miraculously intervene and will protect him. But God did not show us how he's going to do it. 
He just said, I will protect them. And when they flee and when they go, I will take care of them. And he said, Satan will do everything he can. But God will open the earth to help the woman. And the earth opens its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Same picture in the Old Testament. There were some people who wanted to go against Moses. It's called the rebellion of Korah. And God said, come on out here. I, I talk to you. I will take care of you. And they obviously thought, yeah, he's going to anoint me and take Moses out. And so when they were there, well, 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 the Bible says God opened the earth. And what did happen? Pfft, boom. So if God can swallow them, he certainly can swallow the entire army of the Antichrist. He can swallow them just like that. At least the portion that will pursue the Jews. The interesting part of that is they're fleeing on a mountain range. In order to open up the earth, it's got to be quite an earthquake to swallow this entire army. I don't know God, how he's going to do it, but I know in the Bible that in the book of Revelation there are quite a few earthquakes, major earthquakes, where the Bible says they never happened like that before. The earth will help them, will open its mouth and swallow up the flood which the dragon spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. Until then he switched the strategy. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who are the offsprings? Who are the offsprings, what do you think? Somebody go, me? No, I don't want to be a Jew. I want to be a solid follower of Jesus. I want to be a Christian. Now, if you are born a Jew, then you are a Jew. But we are not Jews. How many of you are Jews? Any Jews in here? A half Jew, huh? Yeah, it's there. Uh, we know that. Yeah, good. Uh, but, first and foremost, we are born again believers. See? Yeah. So, the offspring, these are the people who are going throughout the tribulation and becoming born again believers. And there will be a lot. There will be a lot. But the Israelites who are fl fleeing into the mountains, they are separated from the rest of the world. The tribulation period still goes on for another three and a half years. You know, God feeds these people three and a half years. There still will be witnesses out there. God raised up 144,000. What are they going to do? They're going to preach the gospel wherever they are. Remember, we learned they're all over the world. These are the offsprings. They will, they will still hear the gospel and will respond. So for those of you who want to have protection from the Lord and full provision, you may want to leave the United States of America. Do you know why? There's only one place where Satan cannot do his dirty work. It's in Moab country, in Edomite country, and in Ammonite country. But don't leave the States yet. It's actually in modern day Jordan. These are the only places where Satan will not pursue everything. You say, how in the world did you get that one? I never read it. Let's go to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel obviously saw the exact same thing, but from a different viewpoint. In chapter 11, verse 41, he's talking about these end time kings or king, who will fight. And it says in verse 41, he shall also enter the glorious land, 
For Daniel, the glorious land was Israel, was the land God covenanted with Abraham. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Moab, Edom, and the prominent people of Ammon. Ammon is modern-day Amman, which is the capital city of Jordan. Interesting. There will be one area where the Antichrist will not have his fingers on. That's the place right there. And in this vicinity, Israel will be taken care of by God. However, Satan will not be done just because of that. He will attack and attack and attack and attack because he knows, but he has a short time, we read, and he will not give up until Jesus comes personally down here to earth and sets up his kingdom. Until that day, we have work to do. Go with me to uh, Matthew chapter 28. We wrap it up with this. and You will recognize that Jesus said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Uh, how many nations? All. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then once they baptize, we have to do something with them. Correct? What do we have to do with them? Teaching them to observe a few things. All things, what? That I have commanded you. He's talking about Jesus talking about that. I have commanded you and lo, I omit you always. And why did he say even to the end? He didn't say to the end of your years or your life. I will be with you always even to the end of the age. That means the Lord Jesus will protect his people all the way to the end. He will have his faithful remnant because he protects them. Not because they are better, not because they are smarter, but he will protect them and guide them and direct them even under the most severe circumstances. That brings me to a final little thing, a question which I would like to ask all of you. We know we're living in trouble times. Nobody who has eyes open in the morning can't deny that. How many of you believe that God can protect you? How many of you believe that God can provide for you? He might going to test that. Listen, God can and will protect and provide. I think we need to sharpen our faith a little bit. What do you think? Not because we are good, not because we deserve it, but because he made a covenant with us. And lo, I am with you. Always, these are Jesus' words to you and me. To the end of the age, he will not let us go. Good to know. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. We want to praise you. You are so good to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for preparing us for great things to come. Thank you, Lord, for stirring our hearts to have faith in you and you alone. And thank you, Lord, for giving us wisdom and strength in all the journey we are on. One day we will see you setting up your kingdom, and we are excited about it. But until that day, Lord, teach us, guide us, protect us, and provide for us. We will give you the glory and the honor and the praises for it. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people can say, Amen. Let's